everyone. Welcome to episode 23 of Global Talk, our virtual cafe series where we encourage each other by sharing stories of opening hardships. Um, as you know, today we are um, in the second week of our fundraiser um, that we are doing in hopes to help people who are um, experiencing homelessness this winter. Um, and so we thought that it would be appropriate to hear from a frontline worker who has experience working with the vulnerable population. Um, so that's just a little um, a unique situation for us since we normally get to see both of our faces. Um, but given the circumstance that we can understand that we are talking to a real human being on the other side, um, but they just have a blessing to remain on. Um, so hello and welcome to our virtual cafe. Um, thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having me. So since we are at a virtual cafe, um, I just want to share a drink that I'm having. Um, it's nothing, it's just a store-bought uh, cinnamon chai. Um, yeah. How about you? Are you drinking anything? I'm really tired today and I, because I, I had work. I, I was working all day and then I just have water. It's nothing too fancy, but the, I also know that I need to sleep and drinking caffeine at night is not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, better to be safe and get the rest of the day. Can you share just a summary of your experience on the show? Sure. So um, I'm actually not really trained in addictions or dealing specifically with the homeless population. It just so happened that um, I, I'm a, I am a healthcare provider and my majority of my training has been in like working with families and um, working with families and in and then specifically with children too. And um, so when I was very early on in my career, as I was going through, um, as I was building my career, sorry. And um, so something that happened was that I, I was working in a major downtown Toronto hospital and um, I just happened to see so many people um, coming in from all walks of life regardless of the specialty that you're um, training for and whether it may be like drug overdose or people who are on the streets, pregnant women coming in with overdose or they are homeless. And so I just happened to be exposed to a lot of those from very early on in my career. And it was only starting this year with the COVID crisis. Um, I, like many other people, were deployed and redeployed to working in various areas, and then I was very new to the shelter system, so that's kind of my background. <laughs> so, can you share what a common journey might be for someone um, who becomes dependent on, on drugs? It's or... not like this is the most common thing. Everyone's journey and experiences are very different. So for instance, um, I think some of the things that I've seen, and then there are countless others as well, um, but then I know people who started using drugs at a very young age uh, because it's a way of uh, coping mechanism. Um, for instance, um, I do remember this one case, um, this, she was sold into sex trafficking by her family at a very young age. I think it was like, yeah, she was, in the industry for about four, 13, 14 years. And then she was in her 20s. Um, and the things that she used to cope and 
cope with everyday things that she had to do was just numbing herself through using, using opioids. Because once you, the thing with drugs and opioids is that opioids are usually prescribed. I mean, there are things like oxycodone that are prescribed if you have surgery in small amounts, of course, um, it, they are prescribed um, so that it can help you with uh, pain relief. But there are other circumstances where it's people use it more than others because these amount that they used to take, it's not good anymore. So they need more to relieve the pain. So if you have a lot of trauma, it can be used as a coping mechanism too. But otherwise, um, for older adults, like I, I know I used the example of a pain medication earlier. So some people, they, they were initially prescribed because they had pain, um, whether, whether it may be post-operative pain, like post-surgical pain, or other chronic pain issues. And then the small amount of opioid that they used to take for pain relief doesn't work anymore. So they, they increase the dose and then because they build a tolerance to it. And then as you build more tolerance, like you're going to want to take more. So those are some of the common things. Of course, um, these are just very few examples. I can't cover it all. That, <laughs> that alone is a very long conversation, but then these are some of the common things that I've seen or, yeah, so mostly trauma, um, ways of coping with pain or you, or the old amount that you used to take, the small amount, it doesn't work for you anymore. So you would just end up taking more. Simple, yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. I see. And so I, I guess, um, since we're talking about the population people who become homeless or experience homelessness, so some of them, they have had um, surgeries or they have had trauma or um, they somehow encountered these drugs in their youth and now they're addicted to them. Like everyone so, also has their their very unique stories too. And then not everyone in the homeless mm -hmm. population. The homeless population, it's not so homogenized as what you see in the media. Like, hey, like there's an old man, like like on the street, he is addicted, he's a heavy drinker, or he's blah blah blah. Like they're they're so unique in a way that um so there are people who are like homeless, as in they have no fixed address, right? And then you could also define people who are underhoused, meaning um, they have a place to sleep, like a roof over their head, but then it's not really their home. So they're really couch surfing, right? Or staying with family, like uh, staying with family with no, no permanent housing of their own. So that could actually be easily defined as a homelessness. Um, people who use the shelter system, that can also fit into that. So the, broad, um, so the definition is pretty broad, right? So general definition is like someone who is not in a stable permanent housing. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you expanded on that because I think those people... Um, yeah. are called like yeah. invisible homelessness <laughs> or that that's the term for it um so yeah it's 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 crazy because anybody um like we think it won't happen to us but you don't actually know maybe your friend or someone you do know um is experiencing invisible homelessness so it could really happen to anybody it's so vast and so wide like the shelters that i've worked with like there was a single mom with five kids 
but then she's waiting for um, affordable housing. So she was waiting to be housed, but then she had to wait in the shelter. Yeah, so it's very unique. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, so there's a mixture of all sorts of people, um, and especially at the start of the pandemic, when the city was scrambling to find uh, temporary housing for these people, um, they also, I guess, we were also deployed to, um, I guess, particularly to be, I guess, uh, facilitating safe injection sites for those who did did have drug uh, abuse. Or I don't know what the proper terminology is. That's what you're is. trying to say is um, if yeah. the shelters had... So actually, to tell you the truth, um, to tell you the truth, so at least in Toronto Public Health, they still had their bans running. So Toronto Public Health actually has like a ban for um, responding to overdose. And then they also have um, um, a building where people can come in for super uh so that they can be supervised and so while they while people that come in can use drugs in a safe environment um a lot of these shelters um when they were placed into a hotel you have to figure uh because hotels are not really set up in a way to cater to the needs of this pe these people so and then so that meant that a lot of people have to go through training and then get approval because it's really um so when you so for instance i'll take this example um when a shelter has a outbreak i mean we'll use covid as an example because we're while you're on that subject um when there is a outbreak right. when the outbreak is declared in the shelter you have to remove everybody and then you have to go through deep cleaning according to infection prevention and control. And during when that process, and then during that process, when you find out that X number of people have confirmed positive uh, COVID uh, laboratory tests and they're symptomatic, you need to isolate them. And then a shelter is not really designed to facilitate social distancing, um, wearing, everyone wearing their mask, it's actually very crowded. So that's when they moved everyone into these hotels. And, but then these people, they, depending on how, what they used, what they did pre-pandemic, right? Um, if they, if their routine was like, I need to go and grab my drugs from my supplier at this time, right? and they they needed to use it otherwise they will go into withdrawal where withdrawal and then that's even more dangerous so that's when the city kind of came in it's like so that's when a lot of us kind of thought we need to think of a way that keeps deep these people alive other than having nurses and doctors on site so that's when we worked with a lot of community agencies so that um, the peers and then the community workers so that they, um, because community and peer workers, they have lived experience and then they know how to navigate the system in a way that none of us medical professionals can ever understand. <laughs> yeah, we're very limited in that way too. We're, in a way, we're almost like outsiders too. So 
Yeah, so that's when we started, um, that's when we started supporting uh, these clients in these hotel settings. So that meant that we had to look at the layout, the room and promoting um, OPS room, what we call the OPS room, like the super safe injection room, I guess. I see. So why, why would, um, why would the city or anybody or nurses or healthcare people promote safe, like having a safe injection site? Like, are, does that mean you're endorsing the use of or the abuse of drugs? Yeah, it's more minimizing things and um, and then making sure that they're safe, right? Because if we were to take away drugs or whatever substances that they were using without any backup measures in place, then that can be very, very dangerous. Oh, I see. So so we're not really like endorsing uh, i wouldn't say we're not really endorsing like hey you can use drugs here like i mean all all you want it's not um but then it's more like creating a safe space and we also want to gain trust from them yeah for sure well i guess from what i'm hearing um tell me if i'm wrong um but it sounds like really the goal is just to um Mm -hmm. keep the person alive give them a safe space so that, um, and, and develop a trust so that if and when they, um, I guess, feel ready or, or want to try to, I guess, wean themselves off mm-hmm. the opioids or if they seek help, medical help, they can do that without um, going to jail. Is that sort of what I'm hearing today? No. Um... To some degree, it is yes, because yes, we want to keep them alive because, um, yes, keeping them alive is the most important thing, right? And so that's why we have those measures in place. Um, Another thing, too, is that, yes, we want to build trust from them because people people who are in the shelter system, especially people who are addicts, like they they have a lot of trauma so it is very hard to earn trust from them so if so we really have to meet where they are at as opposed to pushing our own agenda so if that means that we tell them hey you can use the ops room where it's safe for you as opposed to your own room unsupervised because we don't want to find you lying unconscious in your own room um unsupervised for like hours on it <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. yeah and i saw in the news that there were reports where um several people actually uh died from overdose in, and they, they were just they just found the dead body in the room and it was traumatizing for everybody who was there but that's such a tragic thing to to we really want to prevent that from happening because life is precious, even though um, life is precious like, and it's very valuable too. So that's what we're trying to promote because you need to be alive for you to even, so think if we're thinking about it in like 
steps, like gradual steps too, because some people may never reach it, but then some people may, we don't know, right? And then we want, but then for them to even have a chance to making that step towards like going for treatment, um, going for treatment, the ones that I described earlier, or like methadone or suboxone treatments, um, for them to even get to a place where they were thinking about it or even wanting to try it, like they need to be alive. Right. Wow. Yeah, so I guess that helps to really clarify why um, these safe mm -hmm. spaces, supervised spaces for drug use are so important. Um, are there concerns or what are some concerns people have with these um, shelter hotel systems that have been added um, during the pandemic? to provide housing for those who are experiencing homelessness and- It's hard to say because it's very new. Well, A, it's very new. And there is, I think, and then I actually spoke with the management about this too. It's very hard to find people like medical professionals who are trained to work in shelters. It's really, really hard because you have very little equipment, if not any, and then you have to provide the same level of care um, as you would in a clinic or a hospital setting. So that's very, diff uh, so that's very challenging. Part of it is budget, um, part of it is budget too. And um, a lot of people, you also have to respect individual's autonomy, but then you also have your own license to protect as a healthcare professional. So those are at clash with each other a lot in these settings. Wow. Um, also, a lot of these um, hotels are in the suburban areas of the city too. So let's say if your home base was mostly in downtown Toronto, and if you regularly got your drugs, whatever, or whatever from a supplier in Toronto, I'm using the drug dealer example here, but then um, right, if okay. you were suddenly placed in a shelter in Scarborough, like on the outskirts of Scarborough, and that if your supply, if you if your supplier can't supply you with the drugs that you need on a regular basis, that can also yeah, or it can be too far away. It can, right. be, it okay. can be very, very challenging. Right, right. And then building and if you receive like a, if you're changing suppliers or if the supply has been contaminated, like let's say if you took five milligram of your drugs, like like how you would normally do it with a new supplier, that five milligram might not be a safe dose for you. So, and then mm, we're also having to navigate around that, like spe specifically with the contaminated drug supply. So that's been very, very challenging as well because there's something new every single day. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So what is one thing that you would want more people to know about people who suffer from drug abuse? Is there hope? I think there is. I honestly think there is a lot of hope because I've seen people who said, I've had, I'll give this one example. Um, I've I had a client who was in one of one of the hotel shelters, and then he said, I went through a lot of trauma in my life with a lot of people around me just dying. And then I don't want, I want to come, I want to be clean, right? From the drugs. So 
And then this person was saying that I don't want to take all the old drugs that we were taking, but then this person still needed a lot of help. So this person still needed, to, like, we were giving him, like, the medications that are safe to take so that he doesn't go through the horrible effects of going through withdrawal, like feeling gross and yucky. I'm just saying that right. in layman's terms, like, yeah. I could list out the full side effects and symptoms and side effects, but then I don't like I don't think this is meant to be like a medical lesson. So I'm just going to put it as gross and yucky. <laughs> yeah, and then feeling awful. But then, um, but then he was wanting to um, make a change, so he sought after on seek, seeking the help of addictions uh, doctor and other pharmacists who know so much more than I than I know currently and then so he so he was making all those right steps and then being very responsible being very responsible about it I think another one too is like in the even the recovery process like it's really like it's a very gradual process too um, I'll say that for methadone. Um, methadone is a drug that you need to be supervised by a healthcare worker every single day. So if you're on meth, if you're using methadone, you need to go to a doc. You need to go to your nearest pharmacy every single morning, and then the pharmacist needs to watch you take your methadone, um, or you can do that with a nurse too um, wow. at these sites, um, and then. And then you go off and do your thing, and then you go off on your way. And then for them, a step forward might be getting something like a carry. So like you can get supply of three carries at a time. I'm just giving uh, like an arbitrary example. I think yeah, I've seen three carries being prescribed. So it's like you have your. It looks like I guess the best analogy I can give is like a lockbox. So you can take one methadone dose at a time, right? Um, per one day. So that because that means oh, that you see. have, you've shown that you have your you're responsible for taking your own medication on time, and then you're not going to be abusing them. So that can be like another step. So it's. So I think there is a lot of hope actually for these people. And then um, some people do end up coming, um, going completely clean as well. And then their lives are transformed. And then I've seen that happen as well. So I think there is a lot of hope, but then everyone's at a very different pace. And then for some, they might, they may reach a place where they will consider about changing but then some for but unfortunately the reality is that some people might never ever get there but at least um we can keep them alive and safe so that at least some people can get there yeah i think that's really important like as long as they're alive they have that opportunity to yeah. um, if they want to so for people who um still are employed, have a home, and, you know, they, I guess, don't know too much about the situation, or through this video, hopefully, they have learned about um, this, how there's so many people um, who come from such different life journeys, and somehow end up um, using drugs, or somehow end up in these situations where they find themselves homeless. 
Um, what can people who do have jobs, a stable income, roof over their heads, what can they do to help? So, um, so I guess you're, what you're asking is what can people who are relatively well-connected in society, um, people who have jobs, what can we do um, when in terms of helping the homeless, homeless and, and um, just being more aware of the situation. So I think a lot of this starts with being aware and being sensitive about the population as a whole. And then just, and then recognizing that homelessness, it's not what we see in the media as like old white men sitting in the, sitting on the street panhandling, that's not the, that doesn't encompass the entire homelessness. There, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And then it's a lot more complicated. So I think step one is the awareness portion. But then I think another thing, too, so I'm thinking about this question as like practical approaches and um, non-practical yes. or like something that's a little more beyond our scope. Yeah. So some of the practical things sure, that I can yeah. do is let's, I mean, I know that a lot of us are working from home at this point. Um, so let's see if so if you were, but then if you were ever to be in downtown Toronto or wherever, and that if you see someone who is, um, who is, let's say if you were just like walking down, I guess, um, near um, Loblaws in Union College, and if you just happen to find like someone who's lying there unconscious, unconscious, right, then the things that and then if you kind of look at them and then if they look really, really pale and then, and then that person clearly looks homeless, then the, one of the practical things that you can do is call for an EMS. But if, and then if anything, go into a nearest um, shopper's drug mart and um, ask for an naloxone kit so that you don't have to give them naloxone. Um, a uh, pharmacist can give naloxone too. They're trained. So, so um, if if you think that that person is overdosing, and then just um, so that you, you can really save a life that way, and then also I think so. Speaking on that note, on practical matters, you can also be educated as well, so that you're um, you can also be educated, so that you know that homelessness it's not just black or white definition, there is a law encompassing it. Like there is also underhoused or people who are uh, couch surfing or people who are on the um, marginalization of society. So you can also be aware of those things. That's another one. And um, if you happen to know of organizations that support um, homelessness, you can also be involved that way, just being you can also be involved that way. Those are great steps. Um, this might be a little more specific to youth. Um, and that if you are in a position where you can support um, youth, um, and then recognizing that I didn't talk about it too much for this conversation for the sake of time, but then um, children who are in foster care system, right? They, if they don't, if they're not able to find a good foster family, they are also at a huge risk of becoming homeless. So 
if you're in a capacity, if you are in a position where you can, and if you feel called to support a foster child, that's another thing too, because one of the ways that I think, um, yeah, so one of the things that I'm right now, at least in community setting that I'm learning is through my practice is that we want to focus on the upstream approaches, so preventative measures, so giving youth and children a good shot at um, escaping poverty or homelessness or pulling down the influence of, of joining gangs or whatnot or ending up on the streets, it really comes from prevention, which is um, having, which is being in a safe, secure housing. population in the city just tackling one person at a time is more than you know <laughs> yeah just just focus on one thing and then and then that's if you're called to do it and then if you happen to know of anyone regardless of whether they are uh, experiencing homelessness or not and that but if you happen to know of people who are um, under the influence of drugs or who are regularly using drugs, something that you can do realistically is um, getting a naloxone kit available from the pharmacy. Um, I believe that you have to be trained for it too, but then if you know if you know someone or if that person has a history of opioid use, then naloxone kits are available and then you can also request training that way so those are practical ways because it's really easy to slip through and uh, slip through and slip one time and then go go back because it's like yeah it's almost 
quitting smoking as an analogy like some people they have a new year's resolution and say i'm going to quit smoking in the new year's and then some a lot of people fall through like they go back to smoking because of stress right and then it's not a straight path so it's always good to have those on hand um if you don't feel comfortable using a needle when so naloxone actually comes in two formats uh, the needle which you injected into the muscle or the nasal spray if you don't feel comfortable using a big gigantic needle the needle is actually huge it's about like two and two and a half inches um yeah it's pretty big and if you don't feel comfortable then there is a nasal spray version yeah so you can do that too but during the COVID time, the only reason that I say, like, just don't give naloxone, like, directly to someone who's lying on the street is because you don't know whether that person has COVID or not. Like, that's actually the main reason why I said, go oh, and grab a pharmacist or go and grab someone who has protective equipment. And then, obviously... And I think if we're not trained, yeah. we won't know if they're actually um, <laughs> someone who has overdose, so we'll just yeah. inject someone who's just... And then you can also pull the EMS for them, too. Yeah, so those are just practical ways, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much um, for for sharing and joining our virtual gathering today. Um, yeah, we were really encouraged and... Um, Hopefully our viewers will also feel encouraged and um, willing to support the frontline healthcare workers, social workers, who really are the face of compassion um, to those struggling with drug addiction. Thank you. Thanks so much again. Awesome. All right. Thanks everyone for watching. Bye. We'll see you next time.